Celiac disease is an autoimmune disease that prevents children and adults from eating gluten. And since May is Celiac Disease Awareness Month and there's a lot of misinformation and confusion about celiac disease, today's conversation is both timely and relevant. And I'm joined today by Dr. Nassim Kavari. She's a medical director of the Celiac Disease Center at Stanford Children's Health. And I'm also joined again by registered dietitian and nutritionist, Venus Kalami. And she's also at Stanford Children's. This is Health Talks from Stanford Children's Health. I'm Scott Webb. So it's really great to have you both on today. We're talking about celiac disease and autoimmune diseases in general. So let's start there. Dr. Kavari, what exactly is an autoimmune disease? And specifically, what is celiac disease? So an autoimmune disease is a disease in which your own immune system attacks your own body. Normally, the immune system is there to help attack sort of foreign cells or infections or things like that. But in an autoimmune condition, it mistakenly attacks your intestines or other parts of your body. Celiac disease is what we call an autoimmune enteropathy, where your immune system will actually react to the ingestion of gluten. So if you eat gluten, which could be either rye, barley, um, or wheat, then your own body's white blood cells or immune cells will start to fight against your small intestine or other parts of your body. Some people who have celiac disease will have no symptoms whatsoever, and we make the diagnosis because we know that they have what's called a genetic susceptibility towards it. So maybe mom or dad or a sibling or another family member might have it. And other people who have celiac disease can actually have a lot of symptoms, whether that's belly pain, joint pains, diarrhea, constipation, skin rashes, or otherwise. I've talked to some doctors recently about peanut allergies and things like that, and I don't remember kids having peanut allergies when I was a kid. Maybe they did, and we just didn't talk about it, and I don't remember ever hearing about celiac disease, nor was gluten such an issue. So I guess I'm wondering, doctor, why and how has it become such an issue more recently? Is it just greater awareness, better diagnosis, better treatment options? You know, how has gluten become such a big thing? Yeah, that's actually um, a great question, and honestly, the scientific community is also working on that exact question. Um, And the answer is probably all of the above. So on one hand, there are some questions about whether or not the way that we're making gluten and growing gluten um, is just different now. And sort of similar to peanut allergy and the hygiene hypothesis, is it just that the way things are being produced and how clean we are now causes our immune system to act against our body in a way that it never did? But also, we're now recognizing that anywhere between 1% to 2% of the population might actually have celiac disease. And so we're screening a lot more for it, looking for it. And physicians, as well as patients and families, are all recognizing it. And we're also looking harder than we ever had before to be able to identify it before it can become more of a problem or more serious. That's great. You know, thank you so much. I've been wanting to ask a doctor, so it's so great to have an expert on. I've just sort of wondered, you know, when and how did gluten become such a problem? And that really helps. And I'm assuming then that some people may just have a sensitivity to gluten, but that doesn't mean that they naturally have celiac, right? Yeah, that's actually a really great point. There's actually at least three different ways where your body can have reactions to gluten. So one of them is celiac disease. And we really think about celiac disease as an autoimmune reaction to gluten that is ingested or eaten. There's also something called non-celiac gluten sensitivity, where some people may eat gluten and they just feel bad when they eat it. And it's not necessarily an autoimmune reaction, but it is a reaction where their bodies just don't respond well to it. And the way you make those diagnoses are a little bit different and they have different diagnostic criteria. And then lastly, you can actually have an 
allergy to gluten. And sometimes that allergy to gluten means every time I eat gluten, I get hives or get itchy and get uncomfortable. Or other times it can be a little bit less obvious. But when we're making the diagnosis of celiac disease, we're really thinking about all of those conditions where the body can react to gluten in different ways to make sure that we're helping patients treat their body in the way that's best for them. And I want to have you describe your overall approach to managing celiac disease at Stanford Children's. Maybe you can touch about the patient, the fact that it's a lifelong journey, and how they can avoid gluten and really everything that that entails. We have a great team at Stanford, and it's really a multidisciplinary team, and we all really work together to think about our patients who have celiac disease really as people, not just thinking about their celiac disease. So on one hand, when we think about initially meeting them and oftentimes making the diagnosis, we'll work closely with the family to talk about how can we be sure about that diagnosis and what are the steps that we make, and really with a shared decision model, thinking about how to move forward with that. But then once they're actually diagnosed with celiac disease, then I work really closely with our full team, which includes an incredible nutritionist, who you'll hear from in a little while, um, a social worker, we have a nurse, as well as a psychologist. And we really all work together to think about how that individual can continue to live a normal, fulfilling life, despite having to avoid um, gluten, which can be a big part of social culture in general. Yeah, and Venus, uh, maybe you as a nutritionist, you know, can speak to that, speak to the interdisciplinary approach at Stanford Children's. So having celiac disease and needing to be on a lifelong gluten-free diet, it's a bit more complex than it sounds. And just like Dr. Kavari mentioned, our goal is really to treat the patient as a whole individual and take an approach that really makes it clear to the patient that the celiac disease is just one part of them. It's not their identity. It doesn't shape who they are, although inevitably in some ways it does, and that it shouldn't be a barrier to hold them back from living the fullest and best life that they want to. That is the kind of philosophy that we take to providing counseling, and in my case, nutritional counseling, to really empower patients. And something I like to talk about and keep in mind is the sustainability of the diet, right? This is a lifelong diet. It needs to be doable in the short term and the long term. And so that involves managing stress, managing anxiety, and figuring out ways to make it sustainable, doable at school, going out, having sleepovers with friends, so that we are empowering our patients and not limiting them. Yeah, I love that. Uh, sustainable and doable. And, and we all know, us parents out here know that it can be difficult when we're sort of in charge of our kids and they're with us. We seem to have a good handle on these types of things. But then they go to a friend's house and somebody makes a pizza and they don't want to be the oddball who doesn't you know, join in the fun. And so how do you do that? How do you encourage those kids? How do you empower them to make good choices even when mom and dad aren't around? This is the question I probably get the most from all of my patients, especially as younger patients are transitioning into phases of life where they're more independent, like um, in middle school and in high school. And it really comes down to communication, communication and more communication. So that means communication between um, parents of the child's friends, communication of the child to their friends, to the parents of their friends, and just really making sure that everyone's on the same page and that we don't have any last minute surprises. The, the other thing that I like to encourage is that 
when you're prepared, there are less things left to chance. And when there are less things left to chance, there's less anxiety about what could potentially go wrong. So that means having conversations about like food the family can bring to a sleepover that's gluten-free. Again, talking ahead of time, as I already mentioned, if we're eating out with friends, I don't know, going to a pizza parlor, researching options, either by phone apps, which are becoming increasingly popular, asking a restaurant ahead of time what their gluten-free options are so that the child can stick to the diet, but still, you know, without skipping a beat, move forward with their lifestyle, keep hanging out with their friends and not feel like they're being left out of just living a normal life. I definitely echo all of those thoughts. And I would say the one other thing that I would add is that we really like to empower our patients and our families because we realize that, you know, children are not just little people, um, but that they're these incredible independent beings that make their own decisions. And so in order for them to make the decision about how do I keep my body healthy, they really have to understand, like, what is celiac disease? What happens to my body when I eat gluten? How does this affect me? And oftentimes when they have that knowledge, and they're empowered with that knowledge, then they're motivated to keep their bodies healthy as well. And so I would say it's sort of a dual-sided, one, making sure that both the children and their families understand the effects of gluten on their body, and then secondly, all of the communication aspects that Venice was describing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Knowledge, communication, and just helping them to understand that your parents aren't just being lame. I mean, we might be lame, but we're not, in this case, we're really (laughs) looking out for them and their health. If we call the parents of the people they're staying over with, you know, to just kind of prep them and communicate with them, again, we're just trying to help them. We don't want them to have any sort of reaction or embarrassment while they're at their friends, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think on that note, just because you brought up the topic of embarrassment, And in the realm of self-empowerment, it's something that we try to do is encourage patients to not have to feel like they need to hide their condition and to fully own it. They have celiac, they need to avoid gluten, that's totally okay. But being prepared ahead of time, I think it's less about embarrassment and just more about having options and flexibility when they're hanging out with friends or eating out. Yeah, options and flexibility, I love that. And sticking with you, Venus, what advice do you have for families who are seeking a place to care for their child's celiac disease? I assume you're gonna say Stanford is an amazing place, but I'll let you say it in your words. I would say Stanford's care is probably unparalleled. A lot of that has to do with Dr. Kavari and many of our medical providers who offer the medical care at our center. The biggest thing that I would say to look for is someone who wants to empower you, someone who wants to support you and make you feel that your personal goals as a patient are your doctor's and your team's personal goals as well for you. And that figuring out how to live your gluten-free lifestyle is something that works around your lifestyle rather than you're working your whole life around the gluten. What I would also add to is that it is important to be working with a dietitian who is specialized in celiac disease, who really understands the ins and outs of gluten. It is a subspecialty within itself and it's very nuanced and what a gluten-free diet can look like for each patient can really vary just based on who they are, what they need, and just their individual background, their family and social background as well. So I guess looking for someone, a team, and a provider to kind of spearhead that team who really appreciates the multidimensionality of the condition, the nutritional, the social, the psychology, the medical, and can connect you with a team who's going to empower you and is um, really well-versed in the condition and what it entails. 
Yeah, and Dr. Kavari, you as the head of the team at Stanford Children's, the head of the celiac disease team, what are your thoughts on educating families and encouraging families to seek care at the right place, a place that's a good fit for them? I think since celiac disease is a lifelong illness, it's something where we really want to make sure that children and their families understand what it is, how it affects them, and then how to treat it. Because if treated, it's one of those really beautiful illnesses where you know, all it takes is a diet change. You don't have to worry about a medicine that has side effects or things like that. At the same time, a diet change in a society and culture where food is everywhere and gluten is hidden in so many foods can really affect um, people's lives. So I would say finding a place that also is like the right fit, that you feel comfortable telling your physician and your nutritionist, hey, listen, I am really craving those pretzels that have gluten in them. And I don't know how to get around this. And I accidentally messed up. And maybe I ate a gluten containing pretzel yesterday. And what can I do next time? So I think having a relationship with your team where the kids and the families can be really honest and open, where there's shared discussion in the management of it, so that they're really able to apply these principles to the day-to-day life is so important. Yeah, definitely. And uh, something you said there, you know, it's uh, so key, I think, that gluten is sort of hidden a lot. I don't know why it's hidden exactly, but as you say, it would be easy for a child, even a really diligent child who's been educated and empowered, it would be really easy for them to accidentally eat something because they just simply don't know because gluten is often hidden in products, right? Yeah, I think that's such a great point. It's everywhere. It's in salad dressing. It's in soy sauce. It's a thickener in seasoning um, and in places where you would, you know, sometimes never expect it. So I think to Venus's point, that's why it's so important to have a dietitian who really understands celiac and thinks about it all the time. And we're so lucky that we have a team here with Venus as well as others who really know celiac inside and out. And whether you're eating Indian food or whether you're eating American food or Iranian food or any type of food, she kind of knows where it's hidden and can help families work within their food preferences to still be able to eat safe and healthy and happily. That's so great. And uh, sticking with you, doctor, what can a family expect during that first visit at the SCH celiac program? I'm sure there's a lot of anxiety and apprehension and uncertainty. So what can they expect and what are some of the most common challenges that families face after diagnosis? If they're coming when the diagnosis is still uncertain, then oftentimes it's a visit both with a physician as well as one of our nurse practitioners. And we really discuss the diagnosis of celiac disease, what the options are, the role of endoscopy, which is the little camera that we use to take a look inside of the intestine and often confirm the diagnosis. And then really talking through the risks and benefits and coming up with a shared decision-making process about how to confirm the diagnosis of celiac. And then once the celiac disease is confirmed, we really love all of our new patients, either new to us or newly diagnosed, to have a one-time visit in something that we call our interdisciplinary clinic. And that's really a multidisciplinary group. So that would be a physician, often myself or one of my colleagues, or a nurse practitioner, along with a nutritionist, a social worker, and a psychologist to do almost just like an intake and an introduction to our program. And then also for us to better get to know the child and their family and help determine how can we best support them with this diagnosis, whether it's with more nutrition, more notes for school, counseling for anxiety, or simply just these are the medical things that I'm thinking about and how can I feel better and when will my belly pain go away or when will I start growing? So we'll have a multidisciplinary group really 
help identify how we can best help that child. And doctor, I'm wondering during COVID-19, have some families and patients been more comfortable doing virtual visits? And if so, you know, how has that gone? Yeah, actually, we do virtual visits all the time and we love it. And we found that our patients really love it as well. And so we really like to give our patients and families the options of doing some in-person visits or some virtual visits, really depending upon um, their preference and whether or not we as a clinical team um, feel like we need to examine the children in person or not to make the best um, clinical decision making for them. Yeah, that's great. I've done uh, some uh, virtual visits with my doctor and I've heard from medical professionals that they kind of like it because they like seeing behind the scenes the way the entire medical system is sort of pivoted and been really creative in doing these virtual visits. It's been great, hasn't it? It's been wonderful. Not only here when they live in the Bay Area and we're able to see their clinic visits that way, but also I've had clinic visits with patients from their college dorm rooms, for example. So it's actually a really convenient way to be able to connect with patients who aren't necessarily living right here right now or or maybe traveling or elsewhere as well at times. And Venus, whether we're talking about the initial contact or the long-term follow-up, maybe you can take us through that journey a little bit for patients. So Essentially what the journey looks like for a patient who is newly diagnosed with celiac disease is they've met with Dr. Kavari or another specialized medical provider and they have confirmed that diagnosis. We know at this point that, okay, they have celiac disease or it's very likely in the diagnosis process is just a you know formality at this point. And then at that point, they have a session with me that's really dedicated to educating bringing the family up to speed on what that gluten-free diet looks like and what practices they should be implementing. And that can be a pretty lengthy visit, some upwards of an hour in some cases, just depends on the patient and the family and their familiarity with diets and hidden ingredients and things of that nature. In that first visit, we talk about what is celiac disease, really building off of what the medical providers have educated on so far. What is gluten? Where is it found? Like, where does it come from? Where is it found? Most people know that gluten is in wheat, but they may not appreciate that it's in rye, barley, and potentially certain kinds of oats too, much less the hidden sources. And then something we talk about often, which is cross-contamination, which is when uh, a food that is normally gluten-free comes into contact with a food that is not gluten-free, and then that food that otherwise would have been fine is no longer safe for someone who has celiac. So we really run through the gamut in that first session, and it's a big learning curve, and we really like to reassure our families that this is a journey, right? We don't expect that overnight you're going to do a gluten-free diet, although some families do, and we reassure families that you can take this in stages, like you can first avoid things that are obviously containing gluten like pasta and bread and replace them with their gluten-free counterparts and then maybe we tackle the eating out part next and then maybe we tackle the cross-contamination and then it's really we try to make it patient-driven so again we come back to that theme of sustainability and empowerment and meeting our families at their stage of readiness right and then from there on a standard basis we tend to follow up with our families every six to 12 or so months after that initial visit, sometimes sooner if there are more problems, sometimes less often if things are just smooth sailing. 
But again, it's really patient driven. If our families are overwhelmed, they're like, you know what, I really have all these questions about like why my child still has abdominal pain and what am I getting wrong with this diet? We'll bring our families back in sooner and make sure that they are supported all throughout the way, that they get the education that they need to feel like they're at a level of self-efficacy, that they can lead this lifestyle and diet with confidence. And then the last thing I'll add on that note is that throughout the different life stages of a child, a five-year-old versus a 12-year-old versus an 18-year-old, there are different considerations to be had. So when we have our follow-up visits, depending on where they're at in their life, these are things we talk about, like the transition of eating that's more parent-dependent versus eating that's more driven by the child, like a teenager, transitioning to college and what that might look like and the social aspect of it, like parties and things like that. So even though the treatment is the same all throughout the years, the perspective that we take across the life stages, across ages, can really vary. I just wanted to add that I think, you know, when we used to think about celiac disease, people would often say, see your gastroenterologist, make the diagnosis, and then, oh, change your diet, you're done. And then there wouldn't be any further follow-up. But what we've really been learning nationally among celiac centers is that people benefit, children benefit, and families benefit from having at least annual visits. So in the beginning, as we're learning about the diet and trying to help with the symptoms, et cetera, then oftentimes the children are seen in clinics you know, more frequently. But even once it feels like things are going really well, which is great, as Venice mentioned, they really benefit from at least yearly visits, not only to talk about the different developmental changes and challenges that might come with different just phases of growth and development and adolescence and learning how to incorporate the gluten-free diet, but also making sure that we're screening for other autoimmune conditions that can go along with celiac disease and just making sure that from a medical perspective, the children are also doing really well. So they really benefit from regular visits throughout all the different phases of life, as well as making sure that the right tests are are ordered every year for screening of those other autoimmune illnesses and to make sure that we're still being healthy and strong and staying away from gluten the way that we should be. Yeah, I was just thinking about what Venus said, the different age sort of plateaus along the way, along this journey, is sort of educating a five-year-old, and then you're dealing now with a teenager, and then someone, because we know, as we've discussed here, this is a lifelong journey, and now you're talking about a kid going off to college, right? So that same five-year-old where you had to explain what celiac disease was and what gluten is and why we need to avoid it, now you're trying to convince this 18-year-old, now you're going to be on your own, please don't break down and have pizza, please, we've made it this far. Far, right? Yeah, you make such a great point. And honestly, it's not uncommon that now on uh, my chart, which is our medical email that's safe for patients, where patients will send us messages saying, hey, I'm struggling at college because they're always putting the croutons in the salad bar near the lettuce. <laughs> and that, you know, how am I going to very practically continue to have a gluten-free diet when I want to still eat in the main dining hall with everyone else? And so I think that's such an excellent point and such an important period of life where the kids really, or teenagers and college students really benefit from that extra support in that transition of independence. Yeah, I'm sure they do. And let's talk, Venus, a little bit about the support and the unique services that you offer uh, that could really influence a family's decision to seek care at the SCH Celiac Program. In addition to the individual clinic visits that we do, our interdisciplinary clinic where uh, the patient and the family meets the whole team, something that we're rolling out this May are support groups for teenagers. And this is a multidisciplinary support group with 
a celiac specialized psychologist, social worker, and myself to really talk about the social impacts of the diet, how it feels when you know you go to a high school football game and you can't have the nachos because the nacho cheese surprise is not made with cheese but has wheat starch in it and so therefore that patient can't have it and just talking creating a space where patients who are in the same phase of life going through the same thing with the same condition can really talk and get their feelings out that they normally don't get a chance to talk about and building a forum where we can discuss these things and then rather than having it turn into something that's unproductive and feels shameful or feels negative, taking that and morphing it into something that's productive, that there's an outcome, that we can end on the note of next time you have that situation, here's how you can navigate it. And so we're really excited to launch this, especially as it coincides with Celiac Awareness Month um, in May. So that's one thing that we're offering. The next other um, offering that we're going to be launching soon, hopefully in May as well, is a weekly celiac 101 class, essentially a class for new patients, but also for patients who just want to bring their grandma who just does not get the whole gluten-free spiel to bring in their boyfriend who's like, why am I brushing my teeth before I kiss you and things like that. So again, Getting back to the empowerment aspect of not just putting the onus all on the individual and the family, but also communicating their little village, right? Making sure that they're supported fully. And when we look to research and we look at quality of life in patients and when we look at adherence to the gluten-free diet, we know that up to half of teenagers deal with some level of non-adherence and that those who are struggling with non-adherence tend to have decreased quality of life and that can be largely related to like their support system and not feeling supported. So building up that support system is really something that we focus on to make it sustainable. The other thing I will add to, and I think Dr. Kavari touched on this slightly, is culture. Really acknowledging, recognizing a patient's culture and their cultural background. Doesn't necessarily mean their ethnicity, but just any kind of subcultures that they may be a part of, whether it's their ethnic background, being part of the LGBTQ community, things like that, because all of those come with little micro considerations that can really impact how they feel supported, if they feel supported, and again, impact their ability to adhere to the diet and make it sustainable. So. It's really a whole person approach, and I would even extend that to say that we take a whole village approach, and our classes, our groups, our clinic visits really try to capture and cast a wide net for our patients and make sure they're supported at every level. Doctors, we wrap up here today. Anything else you want to tell people about gluten, about managing celiac disease, about the support and services that Stanford Children's offers? Yeah. One thing is just to remember that celiac disease is really common. And so even when it feels hard or scary um, that someone may have this new diagnosis, remember that up to 1%, sometimes maybe even more, are also living with this condition and that people don't need to be defined by their celiac disease, rather that we really support them being their own person and figuring out how to live and develop in a usual way and to their best while eliminating gluten. And I think that's really the approach that we take here is that we want to help people be their physical best, but also to be their emotional and intellectual and um, spiritual best at the same time and that the two don't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive. And we just have an incredible team of people that will really work with children and their families to help them learn this diet 
and really be supported through the different phases of their life. Yeah, that's well said. And I know it's a bit of a cliche, but uh, helping people to live their best lives, whether they're 5, 12, 18, however old they are, we know that dealing with celiac, managing it is a lifelong journey. And that journey can start at Stanford with all the interdisciplinary approach and support and services and everything else. You folks are doing just amazing work. Thank you both for your time today, and you stay well. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you so much, Scott. And for more information, go to celiacdisease.stanfordchildrens.org. And we hope you found this podcast to be helpful and informative. If you did, please share it on your social channels and be sure to check out the full podcast library for additional topics of interest. This is Health Talks from Stanford Children's Health. I'm Scott Webb. Stay well, and we'll talk again next time.